Good morning, church. Thank you to the praise team for just a beautiful time of worship and song. And I want to give a special thanks to those who, from last week's message, heard about Caleb giving the uh, $20 back and decided to uh, reward him financially. Thank you for that. You know who you are. You've, you've helped Maggie and I to teach Caleb an important lesson, namely that honoring Christ gets you a Nerf gun. So, <laughs> so thank you. Church, would you, would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, we are so thankful for who you are and for what you've done. Lord God, none of us deserve salvation. None of us can earn it. And yet, Father, you've sent your son to die to accomplish it for us. And we can have true peace and joy in that. And so, God, would you now bless this time that we spend in your word. Lord, would your Holy Spirit move in this place. And, Father God, would you help us to understand your word. And having rightly understood your word, that we would apply it to our lives. Father, would you do this for Jesus' sake? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When she emerged from the waters of the Chesapeake Bay that summer day in 1967, Joni Erickson Tata knew her life would never be the same Again, as an athletic 17-year-old, she had gone swimming with her sister, and as they reached the floating raft a few yards offshore, she took a reckless dive, only to find that the water was too shallow. The doctors informed her that she would be paralyzed for the rest of her life, and due to the fact that she couldn't use her hands to take her life physically, or by pushing pills down her throat, she was tempted to end her life emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. She just wanted to remain in her room, closed off from the world and from everyone in it. In the darkness of that room, she cried out, quote, God, if I can't die, then show me how to live. Thankfully, God put Christian friends in her life to show her that God permits, this is her quote, God permits what he hates to accomplish that which he loves. In spite of her injury, she learned to give thanks to God. And with each step of obedience, her faith grew and her perspective changed. She would later start Joni and Friends, which is an organization that, quote, shares the hope of the gospel and gives practical help to people impacted by disability worldwide. According to their website, this is Joni and Friends, they've been changing the church and communities around the globe for the past 40 years. God has used Joni Erickson Tata's disability in a mighty way to advance the gospel and give help to families and individuals who struggle with disability issues. And even Joni herself still struggles day to day with her quadriplegic, 
quadriplegic state. I saw her last year in the uh, Legionnaire Conference. I had the uh, pleasure of being at that conference uh, for the 2018 National Conference. And I got the chance to see her speak. And I can tell you this, it was nothing short of absolutely inspiring. As she sat there in her wheelchair speaking about suffering and spiritual awakening, which was actually the theme of last year's conference, it was evident that God had shown himself faithful to this woman, faithful to her in the midst of her difficulty. And you could visibly see the joy that she exuded as she spoke and even sang of God's goodness. Church, when trials come, and they will, it's easy to blame God and become bitter towards him. Psalm 73, 21 through 22 says, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. I love what theologian Steve Rung says. He says, frustration over our circumstances can turn to bitterness and hopelessness, making us completely ineffective, which could have been Joni Erickson Tata's plight. Something needs to change, but what, he goes on. In the Bible, what happens when God's people cry out? What, what does happen? What happens when God's people cry out to him about the wicked prospering and the righteous failing? What changes? Not what you'd think, he says. He says the vast majority of the time, it is the attitude about the circumstances that God changes rather than the circumstances themselves. He says the key is to see things from God's perspective instead of from our own human perspective. It is only then that we can find hope, courage, and faith to move forward, end quote. That was his quote. Church, what is your perspective this morning? What is your perspective towards your circumstances? Are you finding your heart to be growing bitter towards God because of difficulty in your life? Maybe angry at God for things that have taken place? What is your perspective this morning? In their book, How People Change, Timothy S. Lane and Paul David Tripp they, they offer some helpful and insightful observations to how people respond to difficulty. I'm going to just list three of them here. They list several more. But one response to difficulty is to deny, avoid, and escape. And they point out, quote, this is where people pretend that things are okay when they aren't. They avoid anything that brings them close to grief, and they look for ways to escape. And that escape may involve drugs and alcohol, people, community service, gardening, work, TV, overspending, overeating, or a number of other things. The authors also point out whatever we choose, we are refusing to deal with what has happened in our lives. And we fail to see how our own responses expose the true cravings of our hearts. I think that's true. 
we oftentimes try to avoid or deny or not really give credence to the suffering, escape from it. The second response they give is that people tend to magnify, expand, and catastrophize the uh, suffering. Here, the authors point out, here we give in to thinking that our life is identified by one painful moment, that there is no good, truth, or beauty to make life worth living. We use suffering as the lens through which we view our entire world and only see pain, loss, and want. We convince ourselves that no one has gone through what we're going through. The larger our suffering looms, the more blind we are to see the blessings we enjoy every day. But then thirdly, they give a third response, and that is to become prickly or hypersensitive. They point out, when we go through a difficult time, it is easy to see suffering where it doesn't exist. We allow our hearts to marinate in anger and bitterness and become overly sensitive and prickly. We say things like, I've been hurt once and it won't happen again. But when we haven't taken the Lord as our refuge, we become hypervigilant, scanning our surroundings for possible disrespect or mistreatment. We live defensively and self-protectively, always keeping our guard up. It's from the book, How People Change. And so I wonder where we are. And they list so many others. And maybe I didn't touch on how you respond to suffering. Are you angry? Are you bitter? Is there resentment towards God? How are you responding? What is your perspective? This morning I've entitled this message, Joy Where You Least Expect It. Joy Where You Least Expect It. And I believe that our text this morning can help us think through what it means to find joy even in the midst of suffering. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former pro proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. It's the word of God. 
This morning, I want us to see from this text three things. I want us to see Paul's circumstances. I want us to see Paul's critics. And then I want us to see Paul's commitment. So in verses 12 through 14, Paul is going to lay out his circumstances. And there's a reassurance that he's giving. But keep in mind, this is a church that is dear to Paul. This was the first church that Paul started in his ministry. Remember in Acts chapter 16, he was wanting to go to Asia. And the Holy Spirit prohibited him saying, no, you got to go through Macedonia. I've got work there for you to do. And so he had a vision about a man asking him for help. And when he came from this vision, woke up from this vision, he had realized that this was God's will, that they go to Macedonia and go to Philippi, which was a leading city in that region, in that province. And so that's exactly what they do. And Paul starts that church. This church is dear to Paul. Paul loves this church. As we saw last week, this church was on Paul's mind. They were in his prayers. They were in his heart. He held them in a very high regard. And this church was concerned for Paul's welfare. Notice in verse 12, Paul says this. He says, I want you to know, brothers. And brothers there, you can take that, brothers and sisters. I want you to know. What does Paul want the Philippians to know and why? But don't just gloss over, I want you to know. Paul is not just saying that as a passing statement. Hey, by the way, I want you, I want you to know something. No, no. This is an emphatic statement that Paul is making here. It would be like us saying, if you don't hear anything else I say, I want you to hear this. If you don't pay attention to anything else I'm going to lay out, I want you to pay attention to this. Paul is wanting to communicate to this church that the gospel is advancing. Paul wants the Philippians to know that his circumstances have served to advance the gospel. And what were those circumstances? Paul was in prison. This wasn't new to the Philippian church. They were aware of his imprisonment. As a matter of fact, that's why Paul is writing this letter. They had sent Epaphroditus to Paul. While in prison, they knew he was there. But Paul wants them to know that the gospel is being advanced. And the reason he wants them to know that is because from their perspective, Paul just took an L. He just took a major loss. Remember, they partnered with Paul in the gospel. They gave in support of the gospel. They were in fellowship together for the furtherance of the gospel. And now he's in prison. Now he's locked up. He's in chains. This would easily cause the church to be despair, to have despair. But Paul says, no, I listen. He says, I want you to know something, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul had been in prison for roughly two years when this letter was written, and because of his imprisonment, the Philippian believers, as I said, would have imagined this, that this had caused the gospel to, to, to stop being spreaded. It was in jeopardy. But Paul wanted them to understand that the exact opposite thing was happening. Ironically, by the sovereignty of God, actually, the gospel was actually progressing and advancing. And it really seemed to the Philippians that Paul and the gospel would have been put out of commission. But that wasn't the case at all. Paul is, you can look at the letter of Philippians as sort of a missionary report. 
He's writing to encourage them. It's certainly more than that, but it's definitely not less than that. He wants them to know, listen, things are going to be okay. The thing that we both love, the thing that we're both partnering in, the gospel, it's going forward. So he's reassuring this church, don't worry, don't fret, don't think that God's plan has somehow now fallen off because of my situation. And if you know anything about Paul's situation, he's had a rough go of it. You look at Acts 21, he comes back from Ephesus on this missionary journey, and he goes to Jerusalem to see James, and he's telling James, listen, God has greatly blessed the ministry and the gospel to the Gentiles, and James praises God for this. The the elders in the church at Jerusalem are praising God, but then they say, listen, Paul, you got some people who are zealous for the law of Moses, and they know that you're here, and they also know that you've been telling people not to get circumcised. And that they shouldn't follow the law of Moses. And so they give specific instructions for Paul. You know, he'd been out among Gentiles. And as a Jew, they told him, you need to go, have yourself purified, go into the temple, take these four guys with you, right, that you're sponsoring, so that people can see this, right? Do that. And so Paul says, okay, he does that. He goes to the temple. And in that instant, the Jews see him and they cause a crazy riot. So much so that the tribunal, Claudius Lysias, has to send 200 soldiers from the 1,000 that were stationed at Fort Antonio. He sends 200 of them just to get Paul out of the temple. They are beating Paul senseless. That's what, what has happened to me. Paul has that going on. Not to mention, they're, they're, they're getting him out. The tribunal wants to interview him and say, listen, what, what, what's, what's this all about? And the way the Romans do that is they scourge you. They whip you. And so as they're about to whip Paul, Paul says, hold, hold, hold up. Wait a second. Is it lawful for you to beat a Roman uh, citizen? Whoa. You're, you're a Roman citizen? The centurion says to Paul. And Paul says, yeah. The Roman says, listen, I, I bought my citizenship. Paul says, I'm one by birth, right? Is this lawful? So long story short, that gets passed over from Claudius Lysias to Felix. Felix hears Paul's case. The Jews come there. They rally against Paul. They get upset with Paul again. He's brought back to the barracks. He goes before uh, Felix, and now the situation is, you know what, I owe the Jews a favor. I'm going to just leave Paul in prison. Two years. Festus shows up. He can't make sense of it. And in that state, when he's before Festus, he says, listen, I appeal to Caesar. I want my case to be heard before Caesar. That's the context that Paul says, what has happened to me? And what Paul wants his church to know is that this is a good thing. Even though from everybody else's perspective, This is a bad thing. You've been beaten. You've been maligned by the Jews. They lied about Paul, saying that he was causing all kinds of controversy and all kinds of things. They were lying about him. And, and man, Paul's perspective is this this will further the gospel. It's amazing. And so he wants the church to, to know this. But look at the results, secondly. Look at verses 13 and 14. What purpose has Paul's imprisonment served? Paul says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. 
What, what purpose did it serve? The imperial guard knew that Paul was in prison for Christ. Now, you got to understand something about the imperial guard. This was, these were lethal dudes. These were straight killers, right? They were highly trained. And based on Paul's imprisonment, they basically switched guards every four to six hours, depending on which commentator or theologian you're, you're, or historian you're looking at. Basically, every four hours, they're switching. And so Paul had a, a level of freedom that was afforded to him while he was under house arrest, right? He could write, he could send letters, but this Roman soldier was there with him. What do you think Paul was doing that entire time? Every soldier coming in, switching shifts, going out. People visiting Paul, coming in, Paul talking to them. What do you think Paul's doing? Paul is using that situation to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much so that the apostle will write that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Now, some commentators want to say that, well, you know, we can't take that literally. There's over 9,000 roughly in that guard at that time, the uh, Proterian guard. The point is, it was being spread throughout the entire camp, throughout the entire uh, office of these guards. It was being advanced. And again, you have to look at the perspective you're in prison, you're in chains, you're probably going to die, and yet you see it as, man, I get to share the gospel. I get to tell every single person that comes to see me, I get to encourage them, like for instance, Epaphroditus, encourage him, give him this letter you can send. And by the way, Paul wrote many letters while in prison. This one is a prison epistle. Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon were also written in prison. And so he, he is encouraging the believers that, that come in, but the people that see him there, this is strange. They don't get it. But look what he says here. He says, the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, what? That my imprisonment is for Christ. You see, it's it's not just that Paul was suffering as a follower of Christ. He was suffering for Jesus' sake and not as an evildoer or some kind of criminal action like that. But these chains represented something visibly to everybody that saw him. They represented his fellowship with Christ and sharing in his sufferings. That was visibly seen in his chains. So that the Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard are seeing that and all the rest of the people in the house of Caesar are seeing this man in chains for Christ. Why is he in prison? For the gospel. He didn't kill anybody. There was no sexual misconduct or any kind of political upheaval or anything like that. Everybody knew that Paul was in prison for the gospel. That's why he was suffering, for the gospel. I mean, I just think right away, in your situation, through your suffering, do, do people understand who you are? Do they know who you serve? And so that when you suffer, they see, they, they understand that? It's very important. Sharing the gospel was Paul's primary focus. As he'll later say, to live is Christ. That was his whole life. And to die is gain. Are we making the most of our opportunities to share Christ?
And I know it's nerve-wracking. I think that's why it's so important that we attend classes like Pastor Dave is going to be teaching, where we learn how to do that very thing with confidence. We serve a risen Savior. We have good news to tell people. Right? The bad news is that, listen, if you die without Christ, it's a wrap. No do-over. It's done. You are eternally separated from God forever. And we have this news, as Paul will call it, this treasure in jars of clay. Are we taking that message out to others? God can use the difficulty in your circumstance in such a way that it actually creates and fosters an opportunity to share the gospel. That's what he was doing with Paul. That's what he did with Joni Erickson Tata in the beginning of the sermon. Paul, Christ can take difficulty and accomplish his purposes through it. There's a joy in that. But look at the second result. Other Christians were emboldened to share the gospel. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's imprisonment empowered evangelism. Christians who have been afraid to speak about Christ due to the fear of persecution or maybe because of lack of courage, they were now speaking up. They were now in, emboldened to share their faith. They were more confident. The word there for confident is uh, persuaded or convinced. They had become convinced about this thing because of or based on Paul's imprisonment. Even God using Paul's imprisonment to strengthen other believers. So don't miss it. On the one hand, his imprisonment served as an evangelistic tool to uh, strengthen or, or to share the, his faith. But on the other hand, it was also used as an evangelistic tool to uh, embolden and empower other Christians to do the same. Well, he's suffering. Look at him. I wonder if our faith emboldens others. They were more confident in the Lord because of Paul's circumstances. And as a result, they spoke without fear. Church, how is your handling of difficulty manifesting the power of God and the power of the gospel to other people? Husband, times are tough at home due to job loss or cutbacks. Is your response, husband, and perspective emboldening the faith of your wife and your family? Can they see Christ in you? Do they see that hope that what you're going through, God is using that? Or is your response to that like one of the ones I mentioned earlier? I just need to get out of here. I can't be around right now. I don't want to be around my wife. I don't want to be around the kids. I'm, I'm having a hard time at work. I'm getting slammed. This is ridiculous. I'm out. Or do we see that God can use these difficult situations for his purposes? Father and mother, how does your response to difficulty embolden the faith of your children? They see. They see what's going on. And they're watching how you respond in tight spots. When life gets tough, when the screws get tied and driven in, how are 
you responding. You've got an audience watching. Do they see Christ? Student, you're being persecuted in college, in the classrooms because of your faith. Is your response to that empowering others to speak out for Christ? I'm just not going to say anything. Remember, these, these people in Paul's day, they, they were being killed for their faith. They were being imprisoned for their faith. And because of what Paul is going through, they are now, like, wanting to speak out. The Bible says, without fear. They were confident about it. Do we have that same confidence in our Lord? Do we have that same uh, uh, confidence in the gospel that we can speak out? And people see that and say, man. He's saying something about God. I'm I'm with you. I got your back. Way back. (laughs) That's usually what it is, right? I'm with you. But but, then it's not until after class, hey, brother, yeah, I believe in Jesus too. You know, but still, even that emboldens faith. Employee, people at the job know you're a Christian and are giving you a hard time because of it. Is your response to that difficulty gospel-centered? Do they see Christ in how you handle tough situations? We were just talking about that this morning in our, in our BFG, about how we handle our responses to difficulty, whether it be in the family, whether it be at the workplace, whether it be in the classroom. How are you responding? What is your perspective? Are you looking at the perspective from a human-centered view or from a God-centered view? That's the key. Paul was looking at the perspective from God's view because God had a purpose to accomplish, namely getting the gospel out, furthering the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That's what motivated, drove him, it inspired him. It is why he's preaching, and he will go before Caesar. And guess what he's going to be doing the whole time? Defending the gospel, which is the very thing he wants to do. Widower, those of you that have lost a loved one, do you see that as an opportunity to manifest Christ to those around you. I know that's tough. And in that, don't hear me say that you're not mourning. But do hear me say that we don't mourn as those without hope. I'm reminded of the lyrics of the song in Christ Alone where the Gettys write, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Is that power your hope? Is that power your joy? People see it. They see that. Why is it that they don't seem broken? They don't seem uh, down, downtrodden or, or they're finished with life. What is it about them? Do they see the gospel of Jesus Christ radiating out of you? That hope that your entire life is anchored on. 
I mean, Paul will later write in this same letter, in, in the very next couple of verses, I'm, I'm, not, I'm confident I'm not going to be put to shame. I will not be at all ashamed. There's nothing for Paul to be ashamed about. His eternal destiny is secure. And when we deal with, with struggles and, and difficulties and trials, we need to know that as well. Where are you in life in your circumstances right now? Can I tell you that you're not there by accident? We don't serve a God who is trying to figure it all out or is learning new information. God is immutable. He doesn't change. God is omniscient. He knows everything. God is sovereign. You're not in your situation by accident. God wants to accomplish something in that situation. For Paul, it was furthering the gospel. Do we see our difficulties as opportunities to do that? That's the question. What governs how you interpret your circumstances? Are you viewing your circumstances through a Christ-centered lens or a man-centered lens? Paul saw his imprisonment as a means by which the gospel was being furthered. But secondly, I want you to notice Paul's critics. You always got the haters. Always got the critics. Who are they? Well, verse 15 and 16 tell us, Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So evidently, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. And those are two words that Paul uses, and they're interesting words. Envy refers to the spite and resentment towards the success or possessions of another. They were haters. They were not happy about Paul's status and how successful he had become in the church. Rivalry refers to contention and strife. Paul was successful in the spread of the gospel, and there were those who did not like the success that he had as an apostle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So while their message was truthful, their motives were not Paul is not saying that these people here were the Judaizers, which some theologians believe this was, these were Jews of the circumcision party, and they were just announcing Christ, not really preaching it. But notice that Paul says, no, I rejoice in that. So he's giving a thumbs up to the, the message. There's nothing wrong with the message. There's not even anything wrong with the method. The problem is with the motives. These men had envy in their heart and strife. Rivalry, as I said, refers to that. But the other group, some preached Christ from goodwill. Goodwill here means good pleasure or wish or desire. It speaks to a delightful, fixed intention of benevolent favor. They knew Paul's situation, right? And so, so let's look at these motives a little bit deeper, well, a little bit more deeply here. In verses 16 and 17, notice what Paul says. He says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And that phrase, I am put here, means to be or become established or set or appointed conclusively, authoritatively. God did this. God put Paul here. 
That's why he was in prison. This was the sovereign act, will, and intention of Almighty God. And the people that supported Paul knew that. And they were with him. And they had genuine feelings of love toward him in the furtherance of the gospel. Their motivation was love. Paul was appointed by God to defend the gospel, and those that preached out of love knew he wasn't in prison because of wrongdoing or criminal activity, and they supported Paul in the proclamation of the gospel. That's the second group. But look at this first, the second group. But look at the first group. Their motives, or their motive, was selfish ambition. That word means a strong drive for personal success without moral inhibitions. Seeing that Paul was in prison probably presented for them an opportunity to advance their own agendas. Rome was basically, there was no real leader there uh, spiritually. And some theologians see this as the same thing that was happening in Corinth, where people were jockeying for a position. You know, I preach Christ, and, or, or uh, you know, I'm Paul, and I'm Apollos, and this kind of thing. That, that's what is believed is happening here, and there is nobody to step into this vacuum in Rome. It's a, it's a new sort of market, to use that term, if you will. And so these guys are saying, man, look, Paul is here. <sighs> Great. And they're, 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 they're not in support of him. They're not wanting to see him and the gospel move forward. But what's interesting is that they're, they're, not, they're not preaching anything wrong. They're not preaching anything erroneous, but it's the attitude. It's what motivated them to do that. They were not sincere or free from prevailing self-interests. But instead, we're thinking of personal advancement. Their aim was to afflict Paul while he was in prison. But again, notice Paul's perspective on this. But before I get to that, church, that can't be us. We, we can't be uh, thinking negatively about other believers or envious of what other believers have or, or what God has blessed them with or where they are in life. I'm suffering. I've got all this going on. And look at so-and-so just skipping through like nothing's wrong. And even though you're a believer and you, you believe in Christ, there's that sense in which that's just not right. I don't like that. We can't let that characterize who we are. As we talked about in our Bible study on Wednesday, we've, we've got to have compassion, kindness, love, and not, as I said last week, that emotional, sappy sentimentalism, but love that is grounded in knowledge and all discernment. That's what's important here. But notice Paul's perspective. He says, what then? I love that. It's basically like he's saying, so what? I got the haters. I got it. They're not preaching error. So what? What makes Paul say that? Why would he have that? I mean, he's in prison. You've got these guys that don't want to see him get out. You know, he's being persecuted in this place. And Paul says, so what? What then? He gives us the reason. And it leads to our last point, which is commitment, Paul's commitment. Paul says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Whether that's happening because of false motives or because of true ones, the, the, the objective is clear. 
Christ is being preached. It's reaching the imperial guard but based on Paul's ministry. Believers are being emboldened by it. Some of those are loving Paul and supporting Paul. Some of them are not. But at the end of the day, Christ is being proclaimed. Regardless of the unscrupulous motives that some used, the result is that Jesus Christ is being preached. Paul could have become depressed. I can't believe these guys. Look at what they're saying about me. Look at what they're doing. He could have been downtrodden by what others were doing to afflict him. But because he had a God-centered, gospel-driven perspective, he could see the benefit of what was happening. Let me say it a third time in case you missed it. Christ is proclaimed. The gospel of Jesus Christ is going forward. And so forget about so-and-so who doesn't like me. Forget about what they're saying about me in prison. People are getting to know Jesus now. And I rejoice in that, as he says in the next verse, Paul's commitment. Paul says, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul not only rejoiced in the fact that Christ was being proclaimed, as he goes on to say, yes, I will re rejoice. Paul was committed to having a joy even in the midst of affliction and difficulty. You, you notice that, right? He says, I rejoice. And then he says, yes, and I will rejoice. I'm rejoicing now in my situation, and I'm going to keep on doing it because of what's happening, because of what God Almighty is doing. I love what Steve Rung says here. He says, he makes an interesting observation about this verse. He notes, there is another Greek word in the second statement when Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. He says, that makes it sound like the commitment to rejoicing is the least likely thing one might do. And isn't that the case? When you're in a tough spot because of a, a child, because of a, a parent, a classroom, a teacher, whatever your situation, because of health issues, the last thing you want to do is rejoice. It just does, it seems counterintuitive. Why would I do that? But when you realize who God is and what God is doing in and through your pain and difficulty and suffering, and that through that, the gospel is being uh, pushed forward. He goes on, he's not just rejoicing now, he's even going to continue to do so. In other words, as I, as I just said, the last thing you would expect Paul to do, given his circumstances, the beatings, the imprisonment, the mocking, the false uh, motives, the last thing you would expect Paul to do is rejoice. And not only is Paul doing that very thing, he's going to keep on doing it. When Paul found himself in the worst possible situation, the place where you would least expect to find joy, namely prison, Paul says, I rejoice, and I will rejoice. Paul's ability to find joy where one would least expect it was due to his perspective. His perspective determined his praise. He could rejoice because God was sovereignly moving and using Paul's circumstances for his glory and the advancement of the gospel. And as I noted earlier, God doesn't often change our circumstances, but instead he does change how we view our circumstances, what our attitudes are 
as Steve Rung actually pointed that out. I want to quote him. God changes how we see what is happening. Are we seeing that through the lens of Christ, through the lens of the gospel? Yes, this is tough. Yes, this is difficult. But God has a purpose in it. God is using it to accomplish his purpose. And I rejoice in that. You know, church, when we understand that God, that God can and does use our trials and difficulties to accomplish his purposes, when we understand that, then we, like Paul, will find joy where we least expect it. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, help us, Lord God, to see things from your view, from your vantage, from your perspective, and help that to be influenced by the gospel, by the word of God. God, give us hearts that are on fire for you, Lord God, even in the midst of our difficulty. Would you use that for your goodwill and purpose? God, thank you for all that you've done, all that you are doing, and praise God, all that you will do. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.